few million people may get to see a Broadway musical on stage, but when the show is over, all that remains are the memories and the original cast album. How do these albums get made? Where do they fit in today's market? What do they mean to the long-term legacy of a musical? Hello, I'm Melissa Rose Bernardo, and joining me to discuss those questions and more are Ted Chapin, President and Executive Director of the Rogers and Hammerstein Organization, Kurt Deutsch, Co-Founder and President of Shikaboom Records, Brian Drutman, Vice President, Broadway and Soundtracks, Decca Label Group, and Recording Executive and Producer, Tom Shepard. Hello, gentlemen. It seems like to produce cast albums, you really have to love them. Would you guys agree? Because the record industry, it seems like such a small part. Those of us who buy them and love them, we're so passionate about them, they're our world. But it's a pretty small part of the record industry. Would you agree? Un unfortunately. <laughs> what, what are we doing? That's it. I'm leaving. That's it. <laughs> no, but I, I also think that, that, that part of, the, of the, the answer has to be putting it in perspective, because you know, there was a time um, before before cast albums were known where where Broadway was the feeder for the pop world mm. and so people listened to the theater to the score of a musical and went and recorded the songs individually and it really wasn't until the early 40s that someone said wait a minute why don't we take the cast that knows the material take the orchestra from the theater let's go into a studio and let's start at the beginning and do the whole thing and put it together so and then then you know through through the years of cast albums being as important a, a part of the musical theater as, as anything. Um, that was great, and now, now we're in a different time for a lot of reasons, and so you know, Kat, you do, you're absolutely right that you have to love cast albums to be any, in any way, way part of the making of them these days. Yeah, and I, I, would, I would also add to that that you have to love musical theater and the history that comes with musical theater, and the cast album is, because it's live, the audience sees it live every day. The cast album is really one of the only things that people remember mm -hmm. from the show. So you're really documenting a piece of history, whether it's the performer, whether it's the composers, whatever it is. That's that time capsule that thing that you have, and it's a tremendous responsibility and honor. At least I I, I consider it to be able to. I mean, I, I look at it as just an incredible honor to be able to 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 just capture all of these these recordings and that's what I love about what I do and you know and and further uh, sort of to Kurt's point the for so many of us um, who didn't get to Broadway a lot when we were kids it was our one connection to yeah. the Broadway show it was what what made us interested in um, you know you talk to young actors today and it's they heard the albums and that's what got them interested and and um, further it's what recaptures what Kurt's talking about sort of the uh, sort of recreating the show it's for me what recreates the show in my mind and if I enjoy the show it's this has helped bringing that memory out and the things I liked about it and uh, what makes it also interesting are the things that are often on the album that are not in the show uh, in terms of performances or, or just any number of augmented things um, which we as connoisseurs come to point out and realize uh, it's just an added element uh, la added layer to it you know, Leverson was a master of uh, making those very subtle but wonderful additions. And I remember I heard the cast album of Gypsy long before I saw the show. And in the cast album, when Ethel Merman is singing, funny, there's a stranger who comes here, there is this rather magnificent 
string line that's like three octaves and a fifth above her tracking her. It's mm. very, very beautiful. And I went to the show, and I, boy, I can hardly wait to hear this live. It wasn't there. It was a Lieberson, you know, <laughs> and uh, absolutely. And the other thing I remember distinctly among many things that Goddard did was that if, if it was an intimate song, um, he would generally try and go for an intimate ending because he knew he didn't have to reach for applause on the recording. So he could be truer to the material sometimes than the practical considerations of the show allowed. It's a very right. interesting way of thinking of records as really their own art form and not as documentaries. Right. I think that's a, that's a pretty interesting point. I mean, how as a producer, how do you, I'm taking over the moderator. Go ahead. I'm ask you questions. Go ahead. You know, what changes do you make for the sake of the recording? Mm -hmm. um, right. How much time you got? Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> An interesting that thing that happened last, we were recording um, the new cast album of Next to Normal. There's a song uh, it, that the daughter sings, and um, and it's called Everything Else. It gets interrupted by one of the actors, but it's a great song for a young girl. It, she's sitting at a piano singing this great monologue about her life, and it doesn't end in the in the show. It just gets cut off. Mm -hmm. And so, in talking to to the composers and everybody, I said, you know, this would be a fantastic audition song for somebody mm -hmm. one day for 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 a young actor. I said, why don't we just Let's end the song. Let's let's. What's what's the last? If she were to make the last word, what would the last word be? And then let's just end it. So, it's a complete song now on the record. In the show, it's not a complete song. Mm. It gets cut off. So, that's one of the things that in thinking mm -hmm. about the what you're talking about, what 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 we do, and and as and as far as the orchestrations go, with the sound design and all the actors singing, it's always important to hear the words. You. It's rare that you really, you know, everybody says, I didn't, you know, actors even say, I never knew that the orchestra yes. was doing that. Yes. So you really get to hear what the orchestra is doing and, and the orchestrations because, you know, God loves sound designers, but they're at a constant battle of what you can hear. Right. So, um, so you really get to hear yes. these orchestrations yes. and people work really hard on them yes. and they're fantastic. And in the theater, basically you're hearing them monaural because you're getting most of the sound from a loudspeaker and it's the whole thing pumped into one speaker, so you lose the spread of the orchestra right. as well, very often in the live theater, which is unfortunate. Mm. Can I ask right. about technology? This is something that, that fascinates me. Once upon a time, the technology of making a recording and therefore making a cast recording went with the companies. The company developed the technology. They had their own studios. You couldn't get into the Columbia Records studio unless you were at Columbia Records. You couldn't get into where RCA recorded. Um, and and they, they tried things along the way, Dynagroove, uh, Stereo 360 sound. Um, do you find, Tom, that since you have produced records from the sort of the days of, oh. of tape going around and around. Yeah, we used to drive to the studio in a covered wagon. <laughs> no, 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 not going back that far. Yeah, okay. No, but, but because today it's all on a hard drive and it's yeah. all, it all is something computer. called tape. <laughs> yeah. Tape. Yeah. But is it, is, it, is it easier, is it less, is, is it more complicated because you have more possibilities today? I, I actually, I, I think that uh, intelligent use of tools, which is what all these things are, is to make your job easier. And I find that uh, because of the technology and because of the flexibility and the way we can insert things and change things and put them together uh, and, and work entirely within a, a, a digital domain, that um, we have much more freedom than we ever did before. The technology isn't running us, we're really running it. And I think, uh, I think it's wonderful. 
Um, but you lead me to another point, you know, <laughs> which, which is when it began with 78s, that were even before tape, and generally there were 10-inch 78s, a tune ran two and a half minutes. If you lived, if you were in the world that we were in at that time, which was that the greatest Broadway songs became the hit parade, the top 40, whatever, then very often, even on the cast albums, you would condense those songs to be two and a half for three minutes. Then I think it was either Kiss Me Kate or South Pacific, um, where Goddard actually did it on 12-inch hmm. 78s, I mean, along with the LP. But, but to a great degree, your storage medium has a lot to do with, with the way you plan something. And right. if you were planning things in two and a half or three and a half minute segments, you made a different kind of album. Um, the LP came along and you had at least 20 to 25 minutes on each mm -hmm. side. And so what you were planning was not only where do you break it, but how do you end the first side on some kind of dramatic high, irrespective of whether it's the, the mm. act breaker. Right. Okay, and, and then along comes the compact disc and there is no act, there is no turning of the thing over, so you can now think in terms of another kind of, and, and so you can start through composing, as it were, the, mm. the thing. And now look what's happening now. For 99 cents, you download a tune, mm. and we're back to the single. You know? Well, and or we're back to an unlimited amount of time, yes. because, because you don't, you, we're not constrict only by the unions, are we constricted, right. constricted with time, because you can actually record uh, there's no, you know, you can record 90 minutes or 100, whatever it is, you can record the entire show because you just download um, onto your iPod. Right. Um, and, and also, I would go back to the technology, because what you were talking about, the tools, is what makes cast albums so alive is their energy. You, you basically record in a day, right? For the most part, you go in and you record it. And so, in the history, there's a lot of imperfections. There's a lot of, you know, people singing out of tune or perform. You're capturing performances, and you're capturing the energy of the performances, and that's what makes cast albums special. The danger with all of the tools that we have now is that they become sterile, and they become everybody's. You can make everything perfect, mm -hmm. and. And, and I think that that is somehow loses sometimes the energy of, you know, when you go see a show live, you're seeing this, you're, you want to capture these real performances. And, um, and so, so I think that there's a constant balance between lining every note up perfectly, making everyone singing perfectly on tune, and, and you lose that breath of, of a live energy. I think that's, that is such an important point because in the, in the days when they were made absolutely in a day, right. um, and when you had to capture the stage performances in, in, in a day, you had no choice but to create an atmosphere in the studio where everybody's relaxed because actually the time, the clock is going faster than anybody wants to know, and yet you have to do that. I, in this re recording of Allegro that we just did at the RNH office, where we did it the old, you know, in a way we did it the old way in that it's a completely created cast album in a studio done bit by bit. Right. But we, that, the, our mantra was just what you said. We want this to sound like they've just come from the theater mm -hmm. and they're giving performances that they were giving on stage. None of them were. There's dialogue mm -hmm. in that recording of two people who weren't even in the studio at the same time. But right. Bruce Pomack, who was one of the producers of the album, had it so in his mind that he even one, one of the actors said to him, you know, 
you're giving me line readings. Some people think I know how to do this. Oh, and at the end, he listened to it, and it's like, no, no, Bruce yeah. knew exactly yeah. the way to make that line work with that line. Right. Yeah. I, I think there's, there's, a, there's a medium point in this. I mean, one of the, you were at the company recording sessions, one of the memorable moments is Stritch being amazingly slightly out of key during the, the whole, mm. and that's just great. I, I wouldn't want to do anything to, to have a pitch adjuster to change her. No, no. At the same time, if there is, if there's a bad habit that somebody, uh, some kind of musical tick, that you can fix. Oh, please. Fix yeah. it because, <laughs> right. because no, the show you only watch once. No, no you're you're a hundred percent you're a hundred percent right. I mean I, I you know, I say to actors when, when we go into the studio, I say, you know, I'm more interested in your performance. If you get close to the note, that's I can fix it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um but but because we we can, but it's your performance that we want to capture. And it's less about because most of these, a lot of these actors have never been in a recording studio right. before. They they're never used to sing. I mean, we should talk about how you, how we actually make these albums. But you know, they have these headphones on. They're singing. It's completely foreign to them. The 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 band is in isolated booths, and the actors are in isolated booths, and they're all used to doing it together. So it's a very foreign thing, and they've never done it before. And they have one day to do it, and they get shot out of a cannon and. They do it, and we do it, um, but but it's you know we have the technology to make it great, um, but it's but it but but it, you, we have to use it in the right way. I think. How much help do you guys get from the director, the music director, the composer? I know some composers, maybe like Stephen Schwartz, might be more hands-on than others. How does that work? How do you balance that? Well, you know, it's interesting that a lot of uh, a lot of composers want to produce their own albums now, and the it's always fascinating to have them in the studio because they're bringing um, they're bringing the responsibility as a creator in um, in with uh, sort of their knowledge as a producer. Often you have them uh, creating sort of the sound that they want to hear. They're 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 deviating slightly from from what's being performed on stage. That that can work also because. You know, as we said, it isn't really a facsimile of, of what you saw on stage. It's, it's, the album has to exist, has to have its own life. Uh, so that, that, that could be interesting uh, to have them there. But, you know, I guess it depends on who the director is. Most directors, you know, on, on albums that I've worked with are in the booth uh, at the time and make comments. But uh, for the most part, the, the, their work has sort of ended when the production opened. It's, it's what's going on in the studio is, uh, is not really their concept. It's, it's, it's moved to a different point. I like to have a very collaborative um, process. I rely heavily on if, it, I, if the director is interested in being involved, I, I welcome it. I love it because the actors are comfortable with the director. They're comfortable give, getting notes from from you know if, if I'm if I'm saying you know what I think that that performance needs to you know needs to be this I, coming from me who they've never met me before it's <laughs> you know who, who are you <laughs> the outside, you know what I mean right. so if if I can work cl I mean Walter Bobby when we did White Christmas or I've done a couple of records with Walter we have a great relationship I can talk to him or anybody can talk to him and there's a chain of command of how, who communicates with with the the actors. The orchestrator, the composers, um, and the musical director are a team amongst themselves, and so there's a there's a there's a level of communication that happens in that world 
that when you listen when you listen to the music so there's different departments I think and you try to put together a team of people who can work together and then you have a a level of communication that is clear um, when when you're in the studio and then as far as mixing goes there's a lot of people who you know but it's really the composers records mm. ultimately I, I was just thinking back to um, to Secret Garden just by way of an example um, I usually if I'm going to make, not usually, I always, when I make a cast album, I try to figure in my head what is it going to, what kind of album do I want to make? What's the overriding philosophy or whatever of that album? So it generally means that I'm having meetings very early on, weeks before the actual recording session, um, with, with the composer, with the arranger, with the dance arranger, and with, if it's another person who, who wrote the book, with them, so that together we can pull together um, a recording. Uh, how much dialogue between the songs? Um, do we have to change the underscoring because the amount of dialogue is now different? It doesn't time out the same way. Um, how do we make use of the stereo field? Are we going to take advantage of motion, of what's forward, what's backwards, what's intimate, what's, you know? And so, having said all this, it means that we've already established a give-and-take working relationship mm -hmm. many, many weeks in advance of the recording session. And when we go in there, we're pretty much on the same page, and the surprises are whatever happens in the studio. Uh, so the, the people we, we know the least well, I guess, are the performers. Mm -hmm. And so they rely on us very, very heavily. As you said, um, they're not used to being uh, in, on a sound stage in a recording studio. They're used to being on a stage. And so one of the good things for us is that it makes them perhaps a little bit more reliant on us because they know that they're now working, you know, in our ballpark. So I, um, hmm. I, I find it's an, it's an interesting mix where uh, you get to know the production team very, very well, but the people you seem to know the least well, at least are, are the ones who are actually doing the performing. Tom, you, you, you were talking about the various aspects, uh, using stereo, depth, stuff like that. Yeah. I, I want to put you on the spot. Um, yeah, you made an album of two by two, yeah. and there's a song <laughs> called Put Him Away. Do you remember I, it? <laughs> I know exactly what happened. Um, <laughs> there were about five of them on stage, right? Everybody but, but <laughs> Noah was singing the song. Right. And um, I wanted it to, to sound like we were going from person to person and making this they judgment. All think, they all think the father's out of his mind, right. so it's the family right. wanders so, over and gets a word from the father. Right. So, I, so I thought, what the hell, um, why, why don't we actually do it with footsteps? <laughs> so I mean, they, were, they were real footsteps. I mean, depending on whether it was <laughs> Harry Gauze or, um, I'm trying to think of her name now, the wonderful woman with the extraordinarily loud and unpleasant voice. Um, <laughs> oh, her. Oh, yes. Oh, now I can it's talk about me. <laughs> but so they all, wore, they all wore different shoes. I mean, that's the way life is. They all walked at different speeds. It, Marilyn Cooper. Oh, wonderful, <laughs> actually. And um, but so, yes, Character but, voice by design. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, Very well absolutely. said. <laughs> no, but but, it, what I love, it's, it's one of the moments that I use to, <laughs> to, to, to illustrate the notion of what you can do theatrically 
uh, in stereo on a show because you know do you want it all to be as Tom said uh, you know dead center mono as you hear in the theater or do you want to use the spread of course you have to be careful if you use the spread because sometimes you're listening to it someplace where you're not going to be able to get both right. channels right. but in that one where yes. Danny Kay is over there and they, yeah. they walk back and forth and then at the end the last thing he says is so outrageous that you feel <laughs> it sounds like they're tumbling over each other to get over to the other side of the right. and again you have to use that I think yes. very carefully in yes. cast albums but it's a theatrical yeah. I mean are you making a radio play are yes. you making, you know, it's, you make choices. I mean, we yes. s we're getting ready to record hair Monday. Mm -hmm. And, um, and we, s you know, there are, there are oh, a lot yeah. of hair records, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and, and I was, because it's Passover on Monday, mm -hmm. I was having a Passover moment last week <laughs> thinking what makes this album different from all of the other albums <laughs> out there. And, and obviously the production is very different. There, the the show is the show is um, there has a lot. There's a lot of different things in it. When the original cast album was made, it was in, on vinyl, so they couldn't record all of the music. Um, the there's songs that are different. There's different orders. Questions came up: Do we put dialogue in it? How do we tell the story? Is this a radio play? Is it a collection of songs? You know, all of those, all of those questions. Um, working with the director and and. Galt, um, the composer, were asked, and we sat around for about four hours figuring out what record do we want to make? Why is this record different, and how will it be different right. in this new age? What was very important was that we capture the spirit, the energy, the tribal. It, it, it's really this production, I think, has a has very much a, more than at least what I've seen a tribal energy to it. And because we're not reliant on length, we can create the Grateful Dead version of of, <laughs> of this of this album. It can really feel tribal, and so that was uh, a word that kept coming up in what we were thinking about. And so we've created a recording script that we'll end up um, using. And so it's it's been fascinating to um, fascinating process of doing it. I, I love the word energy, which everybody has yeah. used here, because I think if there's one thing that, um, in sort of thinking back to why those of us who love cast albums love cast albums, there's a kind of energy in, in good cast albums, even if it's quiet moments. I mean, I think of, of the vamp and chrysanthemum tea in Pacific Overtures. Uh -huh. I mean, they're not playing it fast. They're not, but there's something so there's an yeah. energy yes. to it that that I think it's what makes yeah. the cast the good cast albums differentiate from the yeah. not good cast albums. So, what are some of the not good cast albums? Would you guys name oh, any? We 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 have a common. Uh, <laughs> Do we have? Well, we no. Well, the the original Follies. Oh, oh well, sure. yeah. That, that's okay. a project well, we have. Because that was it was incredibly Trump chopped up, yes, right? Yes, yes. yes. I mean, I'll, I'll take this one a little bit, and then I'll turn it over to no, Tom. No, go um, for it. Having having worked on the original production yeah. of, of Follies in the heyday when a lot of record companies liked making cast albums, and it's interesting to track. You know which company got which at which show, and for some reason, Capital got Follies, um, even though some of the ones that had come before had been done by Columbia, and and they were going to do a two-record set, and they weren't going to do a two-record set, and they were, and they weren't, and they finally decided they didn't, so they truncated everything on the original cast album. It was made in the ballroom of uh, Manhattan's Center on on um, portable equipment. And it, the equipment was having problems all day long. So on top of the one day that you have in the studio, half the time was eaten up by buzzes and microphones and things. It was, a, it was not a very cool day. So the, 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 the recording, the ultimate recording of the original production was not great. 
Uh, there's some magic to be found in there, but it's not great. So I actually watched Tom uh, from the upper level of the of the uh, of the Waldorf Astoria at some lunch, and uh, somebody invited me, and I looked in, I thought, and Sondheim was there as well, and I thought, you know, Tom Shepard, RCA Victor at the time, Stephen Sondheim, you know what? Tom should make a, re a decent recording of Folly. So I wrote and it, then, and we had no, lunch. You came to came to the office. Yeah. And, and you suggested the idea. Yeah, and you said the concert. And, and I, yeah, you the rest said, is history. let's do it. And I said, let's see if we can do it live. And um, yeah, the rest is which, which segues into something that I'd yes. love to talk a, a little bit about here, which is, which is how, ca how albums get financed. Because I was going to yeah. say, for, I've come from the corporate world, so an unsuccessful cast album is one that doesn't make any money. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> of which there are many, but and, anyway. The, you're, you're one of the few people left in a big yes. corporation. <laughs> yes. and. and and I wondered. It, yeah, I'm, I'm running it and running it into the ground. No, no but the. Do you uh, think you still have a job because of <laughs> Mamma Mia and Wicked? <laughs> or, or the uh, yes, the largesse of my boss. And a lot uh, of <laughs> wonderful reissues too. You put out a lot. Yeah, of the. Oh, um, yeah. Well, it's it's just a. Uh, there's so many there's so many aspects to this, um, and the the uh, the mold was of course that large the large record companies made all the records, uh, or most of them at one point, and, and Kurtz created a new model which is unbelievably successful, and, and that's, that's fantastic. And so now I think you have a, a variety of, of models um, and financial uh, kind of considerations and, and um, methods to do these. The, the, um, the one thing, I guess the reason that the corporations are still interested in doing cast albums, I mean, aside from from the windfall on an occasional album, is that they want to have them in the catalog. The the corporations can um, exploit the cast album uh, in many many areas. Uh, it can be songs can be licensed out for TV or radio commercials into films and that kind of thing. So there's a great deal of uh, there's a great deal of opportunity there. I know composers like to be with large corporations for the same reason that their their work gets out there and. and is seen and heard. They cost a lot of money to make. And the reason they cost a lot of money to make is because the the rules for that were sent down from the many, many years were made when Broadway music was extremely popular, were the hits of the day. So the unions and the producers have made deals because the major record labels would always pay for their records, so when they were at the negotiating table, they never thought that they would ever have to foot the bill for these records. So make the record label pay for it. And the record label did. So an actor, when they go into the studio, gets a week's salary for every eight hours they're in the, they're in the uh, st uh, studio. Um, the orchestrator gets 100% reuse for all of their orchestrations. I'm not going to go into the details, but albums can cost, a big Broadway cast album can cost $400,000 or more to make. Or more, or more. yes. <laughs> Lately it got more. $700,000. $700, yeah, yeah. But, but with, and then when you add marketing to that, um, marketing, a cast album, you know, in stores, online, advertising, it can get up there. And, um, and the audience has gotten smaller and smaller and smaller. So something needs to be done if these albums are, are going to continue in, in the long-term future. I mean, we can't even record albums anymore because all of the recording studios are, are mm, basically right. gone. There's no big room in New York anymore to really record a cast album. So there's, there's a big problem uh, in, in the cast album world, which I think will affect Broadway in the long run. And 
producers and unions and the league and everybody have to get together to really solve it. And, you know, like the world, we don't really solve problems until, until it, it there's until, an, until, until, until it's, you know, until until you're you're exactly. exactly. So, so, you know, right now we're, we're, we're sensing and we always make do because we can, but, but ultimately there's going to need to be some, some addressing of this issue in the future. I, I, think. I had a, a thought some years ago which I still think is a, a decent one, which is for a particularly big show, a show that's an expensive show, uh, if the producer of the show built the recording into his budget in much the same way that they build in sure. an overcall, I mean, the chances are, um, if I'm making this up, so you correct me if I'm wrong, but let's say if the show is, is a $5 million show, um, being able to put aside a little less than 10%, which would be $400,000, would cover the recording, and this way the, the investors in the show, the angels, would know that come hell or high water, whether the show sinks or swims, they're going to have an album. Well, we, that's what we, I mean, that's what we do. That, I mean, know. we've been, basically, the, how, how a lot of this started with us was, um, came from looking at a recording contract and realizing that, the, that producers or performers would make a record, but they would never really ever see any money from the album. It, it came kind of backwards. Um, and, and, and so in thinking about it, I was like, well, I'll put up some money and we'll make a record with my wife. And, and if people like it and they buy it, then we'll make money and they won't. And I didn't really think about distribution at the time. But anyway, I oh, yes. now I have to think <laughs> about that. But, but that same contract that was given to my wife was also given to shows. And so shows rarely um, mm -hmm. um, made uh, you know, made any money off of these records. And so in thinking about it, I, was, I, I said, well, why can't the producers help foot the bills for these? And then ultimately it becomes more of a profit sharing thing. And if it makes money, then everybody kind of makes well, yeah, money. Yeah, because right. they're going to sell them right. in the theater right. well, and the and concessions. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, unless you have the producer who feels that the cast album is strictly a marketing tool, exactly. which a lot mm -hmm. of them do feel and um, in that case, it's better to put it off on a bigger label and let, let somebody else let somebody else spend the money to market my show so right. I can market my show. I mean, it's, it's just a, it depends on the project and who the producer is and... and How uh, many producers. And, and whether they've ever made any money on your cast album, <laughs> which a few have, but not a lot, you know. Right. It's, it's all divided, you know, I mean, if, if, if Disney's going to produce a show, Disney's going to be making that record right. because they have that infrastructure in them. Producer wants to produce their show. They don't want to necessarily worry about I want to produce a record. I want right. to. They don't right. want to necessarily worry about that, but it is another asset in their th in their um, in their portfolio. And on top of that, it's really for the future of of life of the show. Mm -hmm. Without a cast album, a show is forgotten. Right. right. It, it doesn't exist in the world of. I mean, you you run a licensing. How important is a cast album in your world of of licensing a show? Important in which version? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, I, I think it's it's fascinating. Again, when when you look at, at how, as you point out, the, the union rules really should be looked at because, you know, orchestrators getting a second. I don't mean in disrespect to orchestrators, but getting paid uh, again for work you've already done once when you probably get a royalty in the theater, which they never did in the old days mm -hmm. to begin with. It's it, there's a and there there's a little bit of a lot of people who have through the years yeah. have have pulled for themselves, yeah. and it, I mean it makes. 
it makes four hundred thousand yeah. dollars. And how many Absolutely. CDs or, or downloads yeah. do you have to yeah. sell? You have to, to sell, for a four hundred thousand dollar album, or let's say for for a five hundred thousand mm dollar -hmm. album, you have to sell about a little over um, probably one hundred and twenty thousand mm -hmm. units. Okay. We're a little higher back. because okay. we have right greater distribution um, costs. But right. yeah, that's right. Some somewhere around mm -hmm. a little over a hundred thousand mm -hmm. copies to uh, to make the money back. And and how many if you how many cast albums sell one hundred thousand units now? Yeah, very, 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 very few, yeah. if hardly any. I mean, how I, Wicked, I'm sure has. W well, Wicked, you know, Wicked, well, Wicked, Wicked there, right? and Jersey Boys and, and, right. and Phantom years ago, yeah. and, but those are not the majority. Of Legally Blonde albums. and Spring Awakening right. now right. Have, sure. sold, have sold right. have sold those. And right. well, That's I know it. Spring Awakening, but, but, right. but, but I mean, it's on yeah. one hand you can count yeah. uh, count them. Spring Awakening did, if I remember, some more interesting marketing too. I, I think they really went after kind of college kids. Well, they pushed like ringtones. I personally have a Spring Awakening oh, ringtone. Good, good. I wake up every morning to the bitch of living. It seems <laughs> appropriate, appropriate, right? right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's, uh, but that really seemed like kind of a fresh way to market the recording. Well, I'll tell you the thing that, that we found in Spring Awakening, which I found fascinating, uh, we expected it to do extremely well as a digital download because the composer was young and had a pop music following. He's a pop um, songwriter and composer, Duncan Sheik. And because the nature of the show was a little younger and the demographic was, was viewed as being younger, so we assumed that the the uh, you know on iTunes where we were selling it or any any digital download would do extremely well uh, in conjunction with the cast album. Um, for our most of our cast albums, we do about maybe 15% uh, on iTunes. 15% uh, of the albums are sold on iTunes. Um, Spring Awakening did raise that bar for us up to maybe 25% uh, or maybe even up to 30%, but that's not what we were expecting. I think we were expecting it to be even a little higher. And so the conclusion I drew from that uh, was that people like cast albums as souvenir items. Uh, the, the most number of sales we do on our cast albums are at the venue, at the theater. Really? And when a show is touring, uh, and if it's a production which has multiple tours, you do that much better. But that's, that's where people that's where people are buying it so uh, it's still viewed as the um, I mean, people want the package and they want everything that comes with it so and they and they want um, they the thing that's interesting that differentiates um, this from popular music is it's about the record it's not about the song mm -hmm. it's you know people are buying whole albums which is actually a beautiful thing about Broadway cast albums um, our our experience for a show like Legally Blonde is we, we're selling sixty percent digital, wow. wow, which is enormous, mm. um, wow. uh, and so it's it's we're we're seeing digital as being a little bit, mm. uh, you know, it's it's around thirty for the catalog, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then the thirty percent for for the catalog. So, but a title, and I think MTV um, certainly the helped with Legally Blonde and the, and the, reality, the, the show. reality show and and everything. Um, and in the Heights is doing a big, uh, a big uh, digital digital business. Well, and you guys did with Passing Strange and In the Heights and Next to Normal the digital advance right. release. Right. Well, for for me, I, I you know if a show is open, I want to get the album as fast as I can. Right. Absolutely. And the way that the distribution world works right now is you deliver a record and you have to wait months to get it into the store to get it out into the world. When I master a record now. Um, I can, I can from the time I master it, it can be up on iTunes in three weeks. So if a show is run, I, that's 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 
records I'm not selling if the show's running. So I, I want to get it up as fast as I can. I don't really care how, how, how people get it, as long as they can somehow get it. So what's the ratio, would you say, between like the digital sales and the actual hard copy sales? At least for my catalog, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm about 25% in the theater. Um, uh, 30, based on the whole catalog, about 30% um, uh, digitally, and then the rest um, traditional retail. And traditional retail equals Am is, includes Amazon. So that's mm. that's um, that's what's going on with, with at least me. I mean, what was interesting was the um, we were people were reluctant. Well, we were reluctant. Uh, we're people, I guess, <laughs> to um, release too early digitally as opposed to sort of the bricks and mortar, as they say, the traditional uh, retail venues, because we didn't want to aggravate. We didn't want to antagonize our traditional yes, retail yes. partners. But since so many of our retail partners are out of business, we don't care so much about antagonizing yeah, yeah. the ones that are yeah. still left. Um, so the well, I mean, you know, it's 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 funny. We don't know um, what's going to happen in the next five years because we don't. I mean, from the retail standpoint, we don't know where it's going. We don't know what's going to be left. Uh, right. and, and also, it's such a regional. I mean, if you think about it, you know, Broadway is really really important in our eight block world. <laughs> you know what I mean? And and we care about it tremendously. But it's, it's, you know, it takes a long time for it to saturate into the ether. And so the people that care about it will find it, hopefully. And, and, um, and so, um, you know, there's 1,000 or 1,200 people a night that are seeing this show every night. Those are the people you want to come away with. I mean, I want them to want to have that music. I want every single person to walk out of there wanting the music and to live it, with it forever. And if people are interested in it beyond that, Fantastic, but I want to get those people to buy. And isn't it interesting that 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 a while back you couldn't buy a T-shirt in the theater, and now not only T-shirts, but you, but that's the main venue for for CD yes, sales. When in the old days, if you grew up in Cincinnati, you went to your local record store, right. waited for the for the right. new cast album to come in. Right. You know, and it's interesting. That's just interesting yeah. that that it's kind of switched in a way that the promotional aspect of it is now connected directly with the show, not as an in anticipation of the show. I think that's right. interesting. Does anybody miss 12-inch pieces of cardboard with potential Lots of writing and photographs. I mean, I feel like the guy with the gray hair here. Well, the, the, the older I get, the, exactly, yeah, the older I get, and the worse my eyesight becomes, the more I miss <laughs> the large yeah. print. Yes, yeah, I, <laughs> I miss the artwork a lot. I really do. That is at least the nice thing about CDs. You have the liner notes, and yeah, yeah. mostly you get the lyrics, mm -hmm. and there usually are some great. You know, someone who's incredibly knowledgeable writes some kind of terrific. Mm -hmm pay on to the production and there are great production shots sometimes yeah. from the recording session or some historic photos. Most LPs had lousy photos. I mean unless it was a gatefold with, with a spread inside. I just my, my memory were very badly reprinted. Well, I can only speak for Columbia in those <laughs> days. But the thing is everything about the album was ready weeks mm -hmm. before um, the recording was actually made. So a lot of the pictures that you saw um, as well as everything, the, the, the pictures, the liner note, the show art, was all created in advance because the last thing to fit into the package uh, was, the, was the piece of vinyl. Uh, and as a result, there was always a disclaimer somewhere in the bottom right corner, <laughs> right. which says, you know, uh, uh, selections as of, you know, whatever mm -hmm. it was, January 15th, New Haven, you know, because that was the last time, the last chance the company had to make corrections mm -hmm. 
on the uh, jacket, although, in fact, they could make corrections on the label up until the last minute. So you will often find on these albums a, a discrepancy between the label and the back of the album. Mm -hmm. But th th these are problems that I don't think you have to face anymore. Right. Because, well, um, no, we, we, we do to a certain degree. I mean, with 13, we did 13 mm -hmm. this year. It's very important for Jason, Robert Brown, God love him, to have the record before we opened. And I said, well, there's not going to be any more new songs, right? No more new songs. <laughs> You're not going to cut any songs. Well, we do, we do. Hmm. Um, the record doesn't really bear any resemblance to what actually <laughs> happened opening night. Um, at least there were two songs cut, that, you know, and now when it gets licensed, there's going to be a new song. And, um, but we had the record opening night. There was an album in everyone's hand, and, um, and my kid loves listening to it. So, yes. um, so we did do that, but there were two songs that were, were, were cut, and so I will now probably remaster that album and add a new song in the future so that um, so that it ref it reflects properly the um, show that will ultimately be performed in the future. Yeah, that, that is one of the things that we have found at, at, at Rodgers and Hammerstein. It's very important for us not to record a version of a Rodgers and Hammerstein show if the material, the new material for a specific production is not going to be made available. Whether it's good, bad, or, or, you know, or indifferent, if it's available, the customers want it. And, you know, if it's a new dance that was put into The King and I, they want that dance. So we've got to be careful of that because it always creates problems. It's like, no, 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 you don't need that. You don't need it. You don't want it. We gave permission for it specifically, but, you know. Right. And in, in an ideal world, you, when, you, when to record the album is a very important, is a very important um, um, thing mm -hmm. because you want, ultimately, to record the final version of the show. I, th I just think that that, you know, they co it costs so much to make right. these records. Re document what it is, and then that will ultimately be what gets licensed and, and what people will remember and want to see, so that, and, and then that's your, that's your, your, your thing that you have. But he and wanted every, I'm right. sorry, he wanted every 12 or 13-year-old girl who well, saw the show to be able to say, Mommy, buy me that CD, as I, soon as they were walking that, out of it's it. It's that, but it's also recognizing that the album, the music, is going to help sell the show. Mm -hmm. So, if, right. there, so if, if, if that song 13 or, or, have, or, or any other title on that show caught on, and it got out there virally because these kids are, you know, he's not wrong in thinking that. Make the album as fast as you can, get it out there because that's going to sell the show. And the music, it's a, you know, because, you know, used to have newspapers and ads, right? Now those ads are banner ads on, on websites that can have music playing. And you're trying to sell a musical. So if, peop if you click on something, you hear music, oh, wow, that sounds really great. I want to go see that. You, your ads now can sing, you know, which is fantastic. And so you can use all of these tools, this technology, the internet opens up a very wide, you know, videos, music video. We just did a music video for Next to Normal that is caught on for, for, for this, that people say, oh, I love this song. I want to go see this show. So we're able to open up a lot of different, and so Jason was right. He, the album is good. It's just... I wish that it would reflect the, <laughs> what's show. ultimately right. the show from opening night, you know. I think it can cut both ways because there are collectors who are, who are absolutely maniacal about every piece of material that a show had. And certain shows, I mean, Camelot comes to mind, 
um, had songs in it which were in the show when it opened. And then in that case, Moss Hart came back and he cut them out. So um, the people who have the original recording of this have additional stuff. There is a kind of collector who loves... The completists. The, exactly. The, oh, yeah. the Miles Kruger. Right. right. I, I want to ask Tom, I, you talked about Goddard Leverson, who is kind of the guru of cast albums. I do not think there is a bad performance on a single album that says produced for records by Goddard Lieberson. Hmm. How could he do that? Today you can futz a little bit and do the orchestra and then bring singers in, but in the days of Goddard Lieberson, it was Sunday, the, the day off after the opening, and he just did it. W did he have a kind of magic in the studio? I mean, it just when you hear Mary That's Martin in the original cast point. album Sound of Music, yes. she has no voice. Yeah. She has no voice, yeah. and you don't care. No. It's an absolutely confident, wonderfully theatrical yes. performance. Or, or was it not Goddard? Was it an engineer or something? I don't know. It's an interesting point. I never thought of it before, but I just think that the man generated, we said energy before, an energy and a magnetism and a trust. I mean, uh, the people, remember, they weren't working with a show recording producer. That They were working with the president of the company. There was a good, whole good point. different thing. I mean, Goddard, I mean, anybody whose nickname is God, you know, he can't right. be all that, you know? And, um, but also, and, he, he's the man. Yeah. Is he not the man, and are you not the man? You know, in your record, sometimes you are, sometimes you aren't. At, at the microphone that says, take one, I mean, that yes. is the one talking to the performers yes. that is, in essence, producing from an artistic standpoint. Well what the performances are that are going to be captured. I, I was asked to, uh, to do the reissue production of uh, Bells Are Ringing. And uh, in the process, um, I managed to listen to a lot of the uh, recording session, which was not, in fact, issued. You know, just, you know, the, the give and take on the session. And I wish I could remember it distinctly, but what I do remember, in essence, was the way Lieberson worked one-on-one -on -one with Judy Holliday um, the party's over, hmm. you know, um, where she was even, you could hear it, she was in tears once in a while because she was trying to do something that she wasn't quite sure she could do. But Goddard, particularly with, with the leads, not with the secondary characters, but particularly with the leads, he worked very closely with them, and not just behind the glass. He was, it was not the other side of the glass. Goddard got out there, and, and that um, certainly influenced me very, very much. I mean, I, I never had his his people skills, um, but I, I did learn to open the door and walk in the room yeah. and talk to people. You know. Yeah, it's an important thing. Yeah. When do you you know when do you go into when do you go and you speak to them right. between us, or when do you press a button and, and give them give them a note, and and how do you get a performance out of out of a, a, a performer? I mean, the reason that we can do these in in a day is because they do it eight times a week. Mm -hmm. So it's in their muscles. Right. It's in their bones. It's, there's no rehearsing. You get up there and you push a button, you press play, and you hope you capture, you, you, you hope you capture magic. But um, you want to make it as, as, as comfortable and as easy for them as, as, as possible in order for them to be able to do that. Do you believe in, in allowing actors to come into the booth and listen to it themselves, or do you think that's a mistake? I think that some some people, my wife, is would not would not like to listen to herself. She becomes self-conscious if she hears it. Some people actually 
um, like to listen to themselves and say, oh, I wish I would have done that differently. Mm -hmm. Let me go do that yeah. and I'll go do it. But it's, it, it really, it, it, I think it really depends on, on, the, perf on the performer. Um, and, uh, I mean, and it has to be somebody uh, in a sort of a significant role. I'm, oh, right. I always think of that famous picture of Mary Martin holding Richard Rogers' hands and sort of the yeah. playback of The Sound of Music. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, you can't have 25 people coming in no, and no, listening serious. to every song going, yeah, I missed my yeah. line yeah, in the back. you got to watch out for wanna... the oboist. <laughs> 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 right. um, but, but, but exactly as Kurt said, I mean, I, I think if it's, if it's a, a solo number and, and a strong one, maybe in a strong acting uh, performance, Maybe the actor wants to, you know, wants to know that wants to know that they can well, go back. And, and there's sometimes that you, you say, know. and there's sometimes that you say, you know, you're trying to get something out of out of a performer, and and you you, you try it a few times, try it a few times. You say, you know what, come here and listen to this right. because we're not exactly. communicating. So exactly. Just listen to this, and you tell me if this is what you, what right. what you're intending, you know, or or what you know what we're trying to do, and they can, they hear, oh, I see, yeah. okay, and then you. And I'd like to. Yeah. Oh, no, I was just going to say, it's something they don't get on stage, right. where they have to trust yes. in the director right. uh, to guide them. Here, they can, they can redo it themselves. The thing is, these people are generally not vocalists, per se. They're actors. Hmm. And they're used to conveying what needs to be conveyed through everything visual, mm -hmm. as well as audible. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes what they're doing with their face or their body is not necessarily reflected and what they sound like. Mm -hmm. um, I, I was thinking, uh, I, was in, I was doing a revival recording of Zorba, with, actually with Anthony Quinn and, and Lila Cordova. And Quinn's a scary guy. I mean, he, he's just so much larger <laughs> than life, you know, and I, I, I probably had just seen La Strada on TV. <laughs> too. I mean, the guy was scary, but he, very likable. And I can't remember the, the selection right now, but there was one number that he was duetting with Kadrova, where everything looked perfectly wonderful to watch them do it, but just to listen to it, he got too angry too soon. He had nowhere to go. He may have still had it to go in his face, in his body, but he didn't in his voice. And he was very receptive to that kind of note, you know, to say, you're getting too mad too quickly. He said, can I hear it? Just where we kind So we played it for him and said, oh, I know exactly what you mean. And so there, you know, there you, you not only validate your own feeling, but you're on the same team. Mm -hmm. He doesn't feel that you're trying to make him do something that's antithetical to his nature or to his performance, but that you're trying to create something that when the sets, lights, and costumes have disappeared, represent the, the emotional um, uh, trajectory uh, of the material. Yeah, it's a very fancy sentence. I mean, it sounds good to me. The song sounds good, you know? When you hear, when you listen to these stories and you hear about the pressure that everybody is under to create a cast album, it's kind of a miracle that there are any. Mm. And that they are as good as yes. they are. And that there are so many. Yeah, it's, that there are so many, yeah. absolutely. There are often, um, at least today, there are often conflicts, not at the session, but maybe a, a conflict with a producer um, about what they want to do, whether it's post-production or include on the album and say, you know, the record company that feels it's going on too long or, or you know, which is typical, you know, sort of showbiz uh, quarrels that we, that we often have and they can get heated and, and um, you try to find a compromise, uh, but, but not usually at the session, I, I found. Mm -hmm. I mean, when, when actors have to record to a pre-recorded track, there's an, 
an odd thing about that. And um, we just had a wonderful experience with Audrey McDonald, who was an extraordinary performer, and she was recording a song in Allegro to a pre-recorded track, and she listened to it, and she did it, and she was fine, and then she got through and she said, I just feel like I'm being a good girl. Can I just... You know, can I just do it? Can yeah. I just cut loose? And of course, knowing that the orchestra's not going to change, we said, well, mm. of course, like that. And the next take was magical. Mm. It was yeah. just, it was like the difference of a, of a performer marking it mm -hmm. very well, and then an actor just in, just taking it on and, and just acquiring it for her own. It was, it was great. Come home, come home, where the brown birds fly. I want to ask you about uh, discs that you wish you could have produced. Hmm. Maybe not. Maybe things you lost out on, or things that oh. other people did that you just admire a whole hmm. lot, that you just love and listen to, and think, "Gosh, I wish I could have done that." West Side Story. I think it's an incredible original cast album. Yes. I, I would have loved to have done Spring Awakening. <laughs> I felt really passionate about the show, mm -hmm. just as as far as kind of the future of musical theater, and and I, I just I loved the show. It was you know I saw it at the Atlantic Theater Company. I'm, I'm friends with the producer and the director and a lot of the performers, and just just wished that I could have been part of it. Mm -hmm. I, I just I love it, so that's all. I wish I would have done it. You touched on an interesting subject: of how do some companies get some projects and others don't, and and. Um, Unfortunately, uh, uh, it's it, a lot of it's just economics now. I mean, years ago, um, people, record producers and record companies, built up relationships with composers, with authors, and you could you could sort of uh, bank on that. And unfortunately, today, a lot of that is it's just it just comes down to who's going to uh, offer the most uh, money, uh, whether it's an advance uh, or whether it's a marketing spend or or. Um, uh, and, and, and I'm not sure that, um, what I don't hear is, let's go to such and such a record company because they're going to make a better record than, than this person. It used person. to be true, though. Yeah, yeah. you don't hear yeah. that today. You just hear, let's go to them because yeah. they have greater distribution or, yeah. you know, what have you. Columbia had a reputation mm -hmm. for making really good cast albums, and RCA did not. Mm. Although some great albums went to RCA because they had an association you know, with George Merrick and David Merrick. Um, so a lot of stuff went there, and some very good stuff went there. Does that go back to the technology and the people who were involved? Because there was it was more of kind of contract and the studios mm -hmm. and the and like the team. You know, there was one team that did these. So it was a was it, was it that? There were decades when when certain companies dominated. dominated. Oh, it was it was the 40s uh -huh. were DECA very much, sure. and then the 50s Columbia 50s uh, for sure, and, yeah, and then some of then the 60s RCA, yeah. and then RCA in yeah. the 70s. Right, right, um, but. Um, no, I, I think also, you know, I, I feel like this show's becoming a tribute to Lieberson, but, <laughs> but he really kind of deserves it. Um, people wanted him to, to do his stuff. They, they knew he understood where they were coming from. He knew that he was part of that world, and so he was a colleague, um, as well as being a president, but he was a colleague. And I don't think the other labels had anybody in charge of shows who brought that aura or that charisma to the task. I mean, I mean, George Marrick was producing them with Andy Wiswell, and, and neither one of them um, were in any way uh, ineffective people. They both knew very well what they were doing, but they didn't have 
They didn't have the sense of theater. They didn't know how to make the transition or the translation from what you see to what you hear. And, and, and Goddard was unique that way. And but yes. then the shift did go to RCA at one point when a certain producer named Thomas C. Shepard moved <laughs> over from Columbia to RCA, and then it had the, then it, it had the focus you, for a period you. of time. <laughs> he reads my cue cards. It's unbelievable. Thank no, but you, but you were also an executive. Much. I mean, because yes, that's exactly, another thing. That's you, right. you, were, you, yes. you went into the studio and made the cast albums, but you also sat at a desk by day to figure out what the division needed to do. It also meant that I had a hand in choosing which, what shows we were going to do. You know, so it was a, a dual. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Well, thanks. This was a lot of fun. And thank you very much. Thank, thank you, you. Thank so you much really for joining us. Thank you. And thank you for joining us. These programs are brought to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York in partnership with our friends at CUNY TV. On behalf of the American Theatre Wing, I'm Melissa Rose Bernardo. And thanks for joining us for another edition of Working in the Theatre. I'm Ted Chapin, Chairman of the American Theatre Wing. The Wing has played a vital role in New York's theatrical life for more than 60 years. Best known for creating the Tony Awards, we stand for excellence, but we also support education in the theater, and our work reaches beyond Broadway in New York. The Working in the Theater television programs, which are supported by the Annenberg Foundation and the Dorothy Strelson Foundation, are unequaled forums for discussions with today's most creative artists. Downstage Center's in-depth radio interviews were created in conjunction with XM Satellite Radio and can be heard on our website. Our annual theater company grants support New York not-for-profits and since they began have distributed nearly three million dollars. We are also pleased to be the home of the Jonathan Larson grants which support emerging composers and lyricists. For people who are starting their careers, we have a two-week boot camp for aspiring actors from colleges across the country called Springboard NYC. And our theater intern group provides a forum for young people who are starting their careers to build a professional network. All of the American Theater Wing's educational and media programs are available for free on demand from our website, americantheaterwing.org. Thanks for your interest in the Wing, and thanks for watching.